right, well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining in. Uh, we'll, we'll give it a few seconds for maybe a few others to hop on. Um, as, as we do that, uh, some of you may know that as a church, we're going through a little bit of a transition. Uh, so we're going to be changing our name. Um, in large part, not a whole lot of anything else is changing other, other than the name. Uh, so we're going to talk through that a little bit uh, next week in care and prayer, so you can look forward to that. Uh, we have sent out some communication on social media, through emails and whatnot, so if you want any details, you can find it there. Uh, but next week we'll talk a little bit more about that, as most of our uh, social media, emails, content gets transitioned over to that new name as well as a new website that, uh, Lord willing, you, you'll see uh, kind of by the end of the week here. So um, next week we'll talk more about those specifics. Uh, this afternoon what I'd like to do is just uh, kind of talk a little bit more about the issue of shame. Uh, so if you haven't been with us uh, through our uh, sermon series, uh, what we've been doing is working through uh, a sermon series on the topic of addiction. Uh, and when you start kind of peeling away the layers uh, to the life experience, the heart dynamic of addiction, you inevitably uh, get down to issues of shame. And so we, uh, this past Sunday, looked specifically at the topic of shame and how then we are to work through some of those, those issues. But uh, this afternoon, I just kind of wanted to go more broadly and look through Scripture. Um, uh, like we've said, like you, you, can't, you can't dive into the storyline of Scripture and not encounter the problem or the issue of, of shame. So the way we defined it um, on Sunday is that shame is the feeling of being unacceptable or unlovable because of what you've done, failed to do, or what has been done to you. So shame is that feeling of, of unacceptance, like I don't, I'm not, I'm not fitting in, or, or, it's, or it's the idea of I can't be loved, I'm, I'm, I'm not approved, and therefore I'm not on the end, and therefore I can't be loved, I'm stained, I'm unclean, I'm broken, I, I'm undeserving, and so I stand on, on the outside kind of looking in. Um, one of the illustrations that oftentimes goes along with this idea of shame is the, is, is the kid who stands there after everyone's been picked for the kickball team, you know, and, and they're this individual, he's the last one picked, and, and inevitably what he feels is a sense of shame, that he doesn't add up, he's not the one who's wanted, he's not the one who, so to speak, is accepted onto their, their team, he's the one kind of left out, and that's the experience of shame for many of us. There's this sense of inadequacy, there's this sense of insecurity, there's this sense that I don't belong. Uh, whether it's because of the things that I've done, whether it's uh, things I've failed to do, or whether it's because of things that have been done to me. Um, so shame is the feeling of being unacceptable or unlovable. So what we're gonna do briefly before jumping into a time of prayer is I just wanna outline how, how we see the topic of shame kind of working through the storyline of Scripture. When we think about the Bible, it's not just a bunch of, like, individual stories. There's one big, what we call meta-narrative, or one big storyline that flows through the pages of, of Scripture. And so uh, what we recognize is that shame is something that we're introduced to at the very beginning of the story, and it's like pulled through the whole narrative of the story until finally there's something of resolution, finally there's something uh, to the solution, if you will, of, of this problem of, of shame. And so I just want to outline that very briefly uh, with you this afternoon. Uh, when, we, when we open up the storyline of the Bible, we obviously see uh, creation. Uh, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, but we also then see man is created, the world's created, 
And at the very beginning, you have Adam and Eve and this incredible story of, of them actually being wed together. Like it, it's the first marriage, God's in attendance. In some sense, the heavenly host, they are in attendance. And it's the man and the woman making these commitments to one another before God and before this heavenly host. And so it's this beautiful moment, but it crescendos with Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, which says, and, ma and the man and his wife were both naked, and here's, here's the term, and they were unashamed. In other words, there was no sense of being unacceptable. There was no sense of being unlovable. It was, if we could say, perfect relationship. It was perfect harmony between God and man and between man and man. So shame was not something that was experienced. Shame was not something that was known. They were unashamed. But of course, we see uh, very soon, what we have is not only um, this, this perfect existence, but now there's like an assault upon this perfect existence. Now, when, when God created the world and he created Adam and Eve and, and we see that they're unashamed, it's, we, we could visualize that as this, that God and man dwelt kind of in, in perfect relationship with one another. They were together, if you will, in that relationship. There was no friction, there was only harmony. And yet, by the time we get then to Genesis chapter 3, we find this, what we often call is the fall, uh, which means we see Adam and Eve and they sin. Now, I'm, again, when we talk about sin, we have to be very clear, because in our, in, our, in our day, in our culture, we, we hear sin and immediately what we think of is this list of morals. Um, obviously, when we talk about sin, it's nothing less than that, but it is certainly more than that. Uh, when we talk about sin, sin is allowing something in this world to ultimately define you, to give you your sense of significance and worth in this world. That, that is what scripture would say is sin. And that's why we would say, C.S. Lewis says, hey, if you never can find significance and meaning in this life, your, your heart is never satisfied with the things of this world, you were probably created for another world. In other words, what he's saying, you were probably created for something bigger than anything this world can offer you. And ultimately, we find in the Bible, you were created for God. He was to be your significance. He would. So God was the one who is ultimately to determine our significance and sense of worth in this life, right? And, and with that significance and worth that's received from God, there's, there's perfect relationship. Man is satisfied. He's not contending for a sense of worth and meaning in this life. No, he found it in God. He finds it in this relationship. And therein, there's this perfect harmony that exists. It's like relationship with God is the perfect equilibrium to man's existence. It's God is the sun in the solar system of man's existence. So when that relationship is, is had, there's something of, of shamelessness. Like there's no need to be ashamed. There's no need to hide. There's no need to pull away. There's no need to, you know, put your clothes on and, and, and hide behind um, anything. It, it's that everything is transparent and everything is open and everything is, is good. And so when God created the world, it was this perfect, harmonious existence uh, in terms of man's relationship to God as well as man's relationship to man. But then what we find is the fall, right? Sin enters. And sin, again, is seeking your significance and worth, your, your definition for who you understand yourself to be. It's seeking those things and anything less than God. And so what do we see Adam and Eve do? We see Adam and Eve say, God, we're not going to abide by your regulations. We're going to determine what is good for us. We're going to determine what is meaningful for us. And so, you know, they eat the fruit and we experience then what is referred to as the fall. And so what then happens in Genesis chapter 3 is as soon as they eat of the fruit, this is what scripture says, then the eyes of both the man and the woman were opened and they knew that they were naked, uh, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves uh, loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, here's shame, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. So in other words, they, they recognize between themselves that something's not right, right? There's shame. They're covering themselves up. It's part of their, their hiding. You know, they're, they're, they're now recognizing we can't be transparent before one another. We're, we're going to hide behind our clothes. We're gonna, it's this act of shame. But now God's coming and we've got to hide away. So, so there's shame that they feel between one another, but it's also shame that they feel before God. That they're feeling unacceptable before one another, and in some sense, un, unlovable. So we, we could visualize this as really recognizing that God and man now become separated. Uh, and, and we see the full, you know, we see the full out, outworking of this in the fact that God eventually says to Adam and Eve, like, hey, the garden is not a place for you to be. Sin can't exist in my presence. And so you see this separation. You see the cherubim standing there guarding the entrance into the garden. Adam and Eve, they're, they're moved out of the garden. There's this separation. There's this realization that really man is unacceptable with God. Uh, there's, there's a problem now in this relationship. Shame is experience. We, we could say it this way, that shame really is the consequence of sin. It, it confuses our relationship with the Lord, and therefore, we feel unacceptable. Um, Adam and Eve, they recognized they were, in some sense, unacceptable before one another. They had to put clothes on, but also now before God, they're moved outside uh, of the garden. And what we begin to see from this point is that shame takes hold of humanity. You have Adam and Eve, they're putting on clothes, but now they're having children, and their children are actually like vying for significance. So you think of the Cain and Abel uh, situation. And, and what was at core there is that Cain felt as though he was being rejected, right? His, 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 his sacrifice was, was rejected, and he took that a certain way. And so he vied for significance. He had to stand over Abel. He gets angry. He kills his, his brother. And we see then this, this destruction relationally take place within, within humanity. And you, you trace that through the storyline of Scripture. There's, there's this this struggle for significance, whether, whether you see it, let's say, you know, between Sarah and Hagar, who's going to be the one who actually care, you know, has the offspring? Uh, and then you get to uh, Jacob and Esau, and once again, there's this contention, who's going to be significant? Who's going to get the blessing? And, and so you see this fallout in relationship between in uh, humanity, and so they're, they're struggling now for some sort of sense of significance because they know that in a deep sense they are unacceptable. They don't match up. They aren't what they should be, and so you see this trend throughout Scripture. Now, once we get into the storyline of, of, of Scripture, specifically in the book of Exodus, you have the story then of God establishing through the leadership of Moses what's referred to as the tabernacle, and what we begin to see is God institutes um, sacrifices, and he institutes priests, and he institutes this, this little place within the tabernacle that's called the Holy of Holies. And in order for one priest to enter into the Holy of Holies, where God was to reside, there would be sacrifices made and procedures accomplished in order for the priest to enter just once a year into the presence of God. In other words, what you begin to see is God begins to make provision for this unacceptableness that man is carrying, this shame that he's carrying. So God makes provision, and he makes provision through animal sacrifice, through the ta tabernacle proceedings, through the priesthood. So we, we recognize that God's not leaving us in our shame. That's the whole point. God... God is, is honest about, yeah, the fact that there's sin, there, there, there's something backward here, uh, and yet God's moving towards man, and he's establishing procedure for man to encounter him. He wants to be, in other words, with his people, and so then from there we see that eventually the tabernacle is 
kind of replaced with the temple, and so still uh, sacrifice and priestly ritual and procedure continues. All of that kind of declaring the fact that God wants to reside among his people, but you can't just enter as you are. Because why? Well, you're unacceptable, right? Now, ultimately, then all of that leads up, of course, to the coming of Jesus. Uh, when Jesus comes, now, now, now you see something radical happen. Because with, with the, the time of the temple, uh, the time of the tabernacle, and the law that was given, there, there's all this, like, the, these ideas of you're, you're unclean, you're unacceptable, you can't just come into the presence of God. But as Jesus comes... It, it, it even says in John chapter 1 that Jesus tabernacled among us. The idea is almost like the presence of God now has come to man in a new way. And as Jesus comes, it's Jesus now who goes about touching others. And this is a theme you see through the gospel. Jesus is touching people. And he's going to people and he's laying his hands on people. And instead of their uncleanness making him unclean, it's his cleanness that is making them clean. In other words, we see this incredible uh, reversal, like the rituals and regulations kind of are, are put to the side, and God is now stepping out into the crowd. He's stepping out into the experiences of man. He's coming after us in all of our shame, in all of our brokenness, in all of our kind of marginalization. We've, we've been pushed away. We feel as though we don't belong. We feel as though we're unacceptable, and that's where Jesus is going. He's going to the margins. He's going to the sinners. He's going to the tax collectors. He's healing the lepers, the unclean. They were supposed to be outside of the city, pushed away. They lived in this real world of shame. They were not acceptable because of their uncleanness as a leper. And what is Jesus doing? He's going after them, and he's healing them. He's touching them, and he's making people clean. Now, obviously, then what ultimately happens, we, we, we find, you know, Jesus is, we would say, touching folks Right? And so his cleanness is, is making them clean. Um, but ultimately what we find is Jesus goes to that cross, right? And he becomes the perfect satisfaction for all the procedures that uh, would have previously gone on within the tabernacle and temple proceedings. And so what does Jesus do? He becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He becomes the sacrifice that we ultimately need. He goes to that cross in order to satisfy the issue of our sin, right? So he pays the penalty there, but in paying the penalty, he also deals with the issue of our shame. Jesus would become the ultimate object of shame through what he suffers at the cross. Just, just think about the storyline of what Jesus suffered for us. The very ones as the God-man who he created and gave life and breath to, they're the ones who would abandon him in the storyline. They're the ones who would betray him. They're the ones who would falsely accuse him. They're the ones who would condemn him. I mean, again and again, these are points of shame that he's being pushed away. Uh, that he, he does not belong in the very creation that he has created. He's being pushed away by his own creation. He's abandoned, he's betrayed, he's falsely accused, he's condemned, and then they would physically assault him. He would endure physical abuse, and then they would ultimately hang him naked in open shame before the crowds upon that cross until he expired. Till, till death would be experienced. And ultimately, it was as he's hanging upon the cross that he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only did people uh, heap shame upon him, push him away, saying he's unacceptable, he deserves to die, not only was that the case, but also then we see that in some sense, and it's hard to explain exactly what's taking here, but something, something of the Father, the Father is turning away from the Son, that, that Jesus is suffering the full weight and penalty of our sins and, and feeling something of this separation, this relational abandonment 
from the Father. And that he would ultimately experience that, he would ultimately suffer that as, as an object, of, as the true, uh, the ultimate object of shame, and he would do it for us, right? He didn't just deal with the issue of sin, which is significant in itself, that he became accursed for us, that he became, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, he became sin for us who knew no sin. He took on that penalty. He bore it in himself, but he also, in doing so, took on our shame. He, took, he, he became the ultimate object of shame. And why? Why does he do all this? Well, he does all this to make our relationship with Jesus, with God, right again, right? He goes through all of this to make our relationship with God right again. You know, when Jesus is on the cross, we, we come to find from the storyline in the Gospels is that the curtain in the temple was torn. The curtain that was in front of the Holy of Holies was torn, and, and miraculously so. And why? Well, it was to depict the fact that separation now had been done away with, that through Jesus there, there is no separation. He is the way, he is the truth, he's the life, he is the door, as he says, that, that we are to enter into in order to come into relationship with God, in order to be made acceptable. That 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that he became sin who knew no sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, he took the penalty of our sin, it's the great exchange, and we inherited now his perfect righteousness, which means, like, we know we're unperfect, we're, we know we don't match up, we know we've experienced shame, we don't belong with God, and yet Jesus now freely gives us his righteousness, which is ultimately our perfect acceptance before the Father. The Father now sees us in the righteousness of Christ, not in the sin that we've committed, for he has satisfied the penalty of our sin at the cross. This is what Jesus has done. He's dealt with our sin, and he's become the ultimate object of shame. Now, what we then begin to recognize is not only is Jesus coming and touching folks, not only is God coming near to man, but Jesus ultimately is fulfilling all the procedures, the sacrificial procedures, so that man can enter into God's presence. But as we recognize the resurrected Jesus, he says, kind of, uh, wait until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In other words, he promised to send the Holy Spirit out. He opens the way now for us to have relationship with God, but there's more to it than that, right? He opens up the way and, and he pours out his spirit upon us so that all who come to faith in Jesus now are indwelt by the spirit. Do you, do you see the radical uh, work now that has gone through the storyline of scripture? It's not just that there's procedures, right? Jesus has satisfied those. It's not just that God has come to us and his touch now cleanses us. It's now that ultimately God resides within us, right? So through Jesus, the holy of holies becomes us. <laughs> as much as we don't feel that, right? That, that's the storyline. That, that's the scandal of the story. It's amazing, right? Can, it's like, can we really believe this because of, of the extravagant grace that we are ultimately shown? Um, so it's not just that, you know, Jesus satisfies the rituals of the temple proceedings. It's not just that he's with us. Now by his spirit, he is actually in us. He takes up residence uh, in us. Now, as we, as we understand, this is where we live in our day. This is where the storyline of Scripture kind of meets up to our, our time in redemptive history. That at this point, the cross has um, been endured, the resurrection, it's the victory of Christ, but, but now the Holy Spirit indwells God's people. And of course, Satan stands there to accuse us, the world is there to entice us, our own kind of uh, flesh, we can feel the temptations at work. So there's obviously still a struggle. Although 
the spirit resides within us, there's still a struggle. Satan's still accusing us. There's lies that he's throwing at us. The world is still enticing us to continue to walk in the ways that we used to walk. And of course, our flesh is still tempting us. It, there's a real kind of enticement to, to leave Christ. Um, and yet, in all of that, the beauty of it is that the Holy Spirit has come within it. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, right? The one who loves to reveal the truth of Jesus to us so that when the world brings its enticement, there's something of truth that the Spirit is working into our hearts and minds. It's incredible. It's like he won't let us live in our shame, in other words. He won't let us live according to the accusations of the enemy. He won't live, let us live according to the enticements of the world. He's continually working on our behalf in us in order for us to live in the good of the grace that we've been shown through Jesus. Right? So this, this is incredible. We get the Holy Spirit who is for our freedom. He, he is for battling our sense of shame and declaring the righteousness of of Christ over us saying, son, daughter of God, you're accepted. Not because of what you've done or failed to do, but because of what Christ has ultimately done for you. You're now accepted, right? Now, when we look at the storyline of scripture, we're not done yet, right? Ultimately, what we find is that one day, Christ is going to return and he's going to make all things new again. Revelation 21 says this. It says the apostle John is writing. He's, he's, he's seeing a vision into the future. And he says, then I saw new heavens and a new earth. I can't wait for that day, right? For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. There was no longer any chaos. Chaos was done. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as, as listen, a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, right? So it, it, it's this, we're going back as we started to a wedding, right? Just as Adam and Eve and, and things went south from there. Now we have another wedding, right? And it's God's people who are being wed ultimately to their Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and the text says, and then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. So in other words, what we see is that the desire of God to be with his people is sovereignly, through redemptive history, ultimately accomplished. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to deal with the issue of our shame, our sense of, of, of unacceptableness before him, right? He wants to deal with all of that for the express purpose of one day making all things new. And what we then begin to see is God dwelling again with man, but in a greater, you know, in a greater glory than what it once was experienced originally. Right? So, so God is bringing about something greater uh, than even what is experienced in Genesis 1 and, and Genesis 2, where there's this perfect harmony. There's something that God's bringing about that, that is all the more glorious, but it's nonetheless the absence of shame. Man is perfectly acceptable with his God, no struggle with shame, no, no accuser to get in the way of that, no world to entice us, no kind of... Uh, you know, flesh that we got to struggle with. No, it's perfect acceptance. Shame is eradicated. There's no stain. There's no uncleanness. There's perfect relationship and perfect harmony with the Lord. So this is the trajectory then of the storyline of Scripture. You can't enter into the storyline of Scripture without encountering the topic of shame. A God who says, yeah, because we are, we have sinned, we're unacceptable, and yet a God who comes after us and ultimately through Jesus makes us acceptable and restores what ultimately we lost way back in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. You got any thoughts on that? All right. So, 
That's the storyline of scripture. God deals with our shame, our unacceptableness, our, our sense of unlovableness before him. Um, now, one of the other things that we have to talk about, remember, is, is we feel shame in relationship to God because of the things we've done or failed to do, but we also feel shame because of what others have done to us. And I want to be very careful here um, because I, I, I think we can enter into Scripture and, and say, okay, yeah, look, look at Jesus. Doesn't he just satisfy all the, the wounds and hurts of our life? And he does. But I also want to recognize that the healing process from much of what we've suffered from others takes time. And that is, God is not a God who just kind of, you know, hits us with the wand and everything's nice and good. He wants to draw us into relationship. He wants to teach us faith, even, even the faith that would say, Jesus, I'm going to give you my sense of shame to know your honor over me, right? That, that, that's a process where he's, he's not banging down our door saying, hey, bring your wounds to me and trust your deepest uh, hurt to me. He, he sits with us, right? He's careful with us. He's gentle with us. He proves his love in some, in some ways, like over time, to the point where, you know, he woos us. He, he wants that hurt. He wants the pain of our, of our lives. And so I want to be careful that we're not just like making this kind of a, a, a cute, tidy idea that Jesus actually heals the shame that has been afflicted on us, all right? It, it, it is a process. It is a relationship. At times, it's hard because in the midst of our own pain, the enemy's coming after us, right? The world is still enticing us, saying, hey, here's, here's, here's a way you can cope. Hey, here's an escape you can run after. Uh, here, here's another way to preserve yourself and build up another wall so you feel secure, this false sense of security. So, so there's so much struggle that revolves not only around the issue of our shame, but also the fact that we are, we're in a spiritual battle, and the enemy knows it, and he loves to exploit our weaknesses, and the, the world is, is pressing in on us to entice us, saying, hey, here's some other ways that you can, you can feel good about yourself. Here's some other ways you can get some rest and, and, and some sort of escape. So we have to be, we have to be careful. But I want to repeat something that we mentioned um, in the sermon from Sunday. Um, you know, we could go through all the text of how Jesus suffered shame for us. And I think those are important and we need those texts and we need those truths. But for me, and, and, and maybe I should be careful to not just saying what's been helpful for me, but nonetheless, I think we need to recognize, you know, we... We have been created in the image of God. So we could go back to the storyline, the beginning of the storyline of Scripture. We've been created in God's image. In other words, how we live our lives is a unique reflection or should be a unique reflection of who our God is. But I think that's a two-way street. When we've suffered abuse and we've suffered uh, intense wounds and the shame that comes with that, when we are disgraced, because we are an image bearer, God is disgraced. When the dignity of our humanity is abused, when, when the dignity of our, our humanity is in some way marred and broken, um, in a real way, that reflects on God. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, where God says, I'm, I'm a God of justice. He accounts for every wound. He accounts for every kind of uh, shame, sense of shame that's been imposed upon us through abuse. For us to be disgraced is for God to be disgraced. And therefore, when Jesus comes and saves us, when, when we are now his child, his son, his daughter, when, when we are saved, much of the wounds of our past need to be recognized as ultimately being pointed at God. Uh, you know, oftentimes in our shame, we kind of harbor those experiences. We feel like, you know, we have to 
deal with those. That, that becomes a uniquely and deeply personal reality. And it, and it is. It's not to take away from the personal uh, and, and deep wounds that that shame inflicts upon us, but that there needs to be uh, something of a directive to God. We need to take those experiences and, it, and if you will, lay them at the feet of Jesus. And again, I want to remind you, like, that happens over time, right? Where, where his love is proven to us, where, where we kind of begin to knock down some of the self-preservation tactics of our own life. And, and we get comfortable now beginning to talk through our pain, beginning to talk through our wounds, and ultimately coming to the point where we can lay them at his feet, right? Our disgrace is ultimately God's disgrace, the wrongs that have been done to us in that way have ultimately been done to God, if you will. And so it's important that we wouldn't harbor those things. And I know because they're so sensitive, we tend to preserve and we tend to build, build up something of, of, of a sense of security around ourselves where we kind of push the wounds down and away so that they're not seen. And yet what God says is, it's okay to come to me in all your wounds. You know, you think about this story, I think it's Luke chapter 8, where Jesus is in his earthly ministry, and, you know, it's, it's Jairus' daughter who, who's, like, about to die. And so, um, Jesus is on his way to uh, tend to her. And, and, and you have to recognize, like, in the day, like, Jairus was, was this guy of, of good standing, he, he was a guy of, you know, notoriety. He would have been acceptable in the culture. And as Jesus is on his way to his house, there's a woman in the crowd who has an issue of blood, which is so important because what the issue of blood tells us is that culturally she was unclean. Well, while here's this guy of notoriety and acceptableness within society, here's this woman who is not acceptable, who should not be in the crowd, because her uncleanness, if you will, would spread to others. And yet she's suffered for 12 years. She spent all her life savings on physicians in order to be, you know, healed and made right. And, and there's nothing that will satisfy. And so out of desperation, she comes and she touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus feels the power go from him. And she's healed. And what does he do? He stops his proceeding, right? He's, he's supposed to be heading to a particular need, right? And, and, and that's an urgent need. And, and that's the need of someone who's acceptable. And he stops. He puts everything on pause. Why? Well, to tend to this, this one woman who shouldn't be in the crowd, who's unacceptable to everyone else standing around. Everyone else would probably know her. She's the one who's, who's not to be in the crowd. But Jesus stops and says, who, who touched me? <laughs> you know, and there she is, attention's drawn to her in those moments. But you should see in the text in Luke chapter 8, Jesus refers to her as daughter. He called, like, in front of the crowd who would say she's unacceptable, Jesus says, uh, no, you're acceptable with me. You're my daughter. And because of your faith, you've been healed. Right? So in these moments, it's not just about the dramatic healing. It's about the fact that Jesus will step into our shame, and, and he is the one who ultimately declares us clean. He's the ultimate one who, who brings healing to us, and he's the ultimate one who says, this is who you are. <laughs> You're my daughter, and you belong to me. So, when it comes down to this uh, idea of, of, of shame, folks, it's important, even when it comes to the wounds that we've suffered from others, that we would faithfully, carefully, in, in time, as, as, as we work things out with the Lord, that we would bring our, our shame and lay them at his feet. He, he's the one who... Ultimately, again, we're image bearers, so our disgrace is God's disgrace. He's the ultimate one who can ultimately step into our shame, and that's what we see Jesus do again and again. He steps into our shame. He defends us, and he defines us. He defends us, and he defines us.
So with that being said, there's, in, 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 in my sense, and just my own words, um, there's a healthy shame and there's a toxic shame. A healthy shame and a toxic shame. Uh, the toxic shame will say, um, you know, pretty much like, hey, I'm limited, I'm imperfect, I'm insecure, and therefore I got to make myself right. right? I, I, I got to preserve the, the wounds and, and, and I got to hide things away and I got to put on a facade of, of being acceptable and being something significant, of being of worth. When I know down deep, yeah, I got these 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 wounds, these gaping holes in my in my life and existence. Like, and 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 so we have to be careful. That's a toxic shame. It's a toxic shame to think that we can handle our own shame. Most of the times, the ways in which we handle our own shame will only bring about more shame. So toxic shame is recognizes that I'm limited, recognizes that I'm imperfect, recognizes uh, the failures at times, recognizes I've been done wrong, and it says I got to do something about it. But healthy shame will, will say, yes, I feel my limitations, I feel even my imperfections, and I may be even tempted in the moment of being unacceptable before God and before others, but it's all reason why I need to get to Jesus, right? That's healthy shame. If, if the shame is driving us to Jesus, right? If it's putting us on the road or the track after Jesus, then, then shame can have actually a redemptive effect. Um, it's not to minimize shame by any stretch. It's just to say, let, let those difficulties press you even more into Christ. Get to Jesus and find that he is the one who will kind of step into our shame. He receives us as we are and all our questions and, and all of our battling and all of our difficulty. He, he, he is the one who receives us as we are. He's the one who ultimately steps into our shame and defends us, right? And he, of course, is the one who ultimately defines us. Uh, when it comes down to it, there there's more to dealing with the emotional trauma and experiences here, but in a very simplistic way, it's getting to Jesus. Let's, let's get to him. Let, let's place our heart before him. Let's place our experiences of shame before him and recognize that he's willing to stand with us, identify with us, and ultimately uh, define us. This is, this is who our Jesus is for us. Um, just thinking about all the, the scripture passages that Dan went through, we can't get away from the fact that the issue of shame is such a massive theme throughout scripture, and it's so intertwined with just sin and, and the nature of how we live in a sinful world as sinful people. So that being said, I think it's so important that we really take stock and spend some time with the Lord in trying to identify areas where shame might might be kind of controlling us and we don't even realize it. You know, some people are very aware of shame and very driven by it and it's obvious, while other people might be controlled by it, but it's much more subtle and they maybe haven't even thought about it. So my encouragement would be just for all of us to really take the time and and to ask the Lord to put his finger on on areas where you know it, it might not be as major of a theme in your life as it is for somebody else but there still might be really important aspects of your life that are kind of being kept locked up by by that shame and so really just getting after it and and trying to root it out by going to Jesus with it um, but we can't do that unless we've identified it and been aware of how it's affecting us. And then the other thing that I was thinking of is, and this kind of takes us a little bit off track of um, where, where we're trying to spend our attention, because we're, we're talking about this through the lens of our addiction series. Um, but I believe there's also a large amount of us who maybe aren't necessarily battling shame in a way that's driving addiction or battling shame because of addiction. 
but maybe we're actually in a way contributing to the shame of other people and um it's this the next level of dealing with your shame is you know you've got to deal with it with jesus first at the cross but then for there to be like really meaningful change in your life the next step is bringing other people into that and that's a whole separate beast beyond bringing this to jesus um because when you bring your your issues to other people, they're not going to necessarily respond the way Jesus does. As much as we, as much as that's what we desire and that's our goal and intention as believers and followers of Jesus, we're not perfect. And so, like that's a whole next level of of handling shame. And so, I think the encouragement that was on my heart is for those of us who aren't necessarily battling that really intense shame that's driving or resulting from addiction. Um, considering how our relationships with people and our responses and how we treat people may in fact be pushing them further into their shame. And um, Paul, in basically every letter that he writes, he's, he's dealing with how we treat other people. And I believe like a large important piece of that is um, we are to be representing how Jesus would respond to us with our shame like that's how we need to be responding to one another so that means like being really intentional about sitting with other people in their mess and being intentional about loving them as they are and um yeah a lot more could be said about that and that like i said that that kind of takes you to a whole separate conversation but just my encouragement if you're if you're not battling that intense shame um first of all take take some time to evaluate your heart and see if there are areas of shame you haven't realized. And then beyond that, ask the Lord to help you grow in, in how you're loving other people and how you're representing Jesus for those who are handling heavy shame. So, yeah. And it, um, James has done well, uh, even last so many weeks in terms of the Lord challenging us in some ways of, when we when we interact with folks, even even as they perhaps suffer from failings or, you know, or they're just carrying the shame of stuff that others have done against them, uh, it it at times you, you struggle to see God's grace at work in your life. You you just you you see the failings, you see the shame, you, the wounds are just glaring, you know, in you in your face. It's um, and you don't necessarily see all the ways that. God is still working through it all. And so even what we see, you know, Paul doing is not only this willingness to sit and, and, and be present with the hurting, but also like he's so good, you know, to he begins so many of his letters by saying, man, look what God's doing in your hearts and lives here. here. And he's pointing it out again and again. And, and he, he'll eventually get to some challenges and uh, whatnot. But he begins always just by, hey, pointing out here, here's the evidences of grace at work in your in your life. Uh, let, let's honor what God is doing. Uh, so it, it is important, even in the experience of shame, that we, we're slow to speak, as James would say, that we're present with people before we're just rattling off our, our, our thoughts. But um, as there is time and opportunity given, uh, it's important to begin with, hey, here's just how I see God at work. Um, God's, you know, in sustaining grace upon upon your life, and just pointing those things out, because oftentimes, uh, within uh, difficulties like this, you, you you just don't you don't you don't see how God's working, and you're questioning, uh, in some sense, how God is working. Um, so some some ideas. There's so much more. This is very much more complex, and every situation is is gonna be a little bit uh, different, a little bit unique in terms of what it requires. Uh, but nonetheless, I hope it's helpful to recognize that, man, when it comes down to it, God is on a mission to save us from our shame. Obviously, he's gonna deal with the problems of our sin, he's gonna make us acceptable, and in making us acceptable before him, he deals with the issues of our shame. All right, well, we're going to spend a little bit of time praying. Um, we don't have any huge specifics. If you got any uh, particular thoughts, uh, things that we can pray for, uh, feel free to 
toss those out there. We'd love to pray uh, and intercede for them. Um, anywhere you want to start? I'll, I'll jump in, and we'll get rolling. Uh, God, first first order is we we um, we we must thank you. Um, we must honor you. We must praise you. God, thank you that you're a God who um, comes after us in our sin and in our shame. When we're unacceptable, thank you that you make a way for us to be acceptable, when we are constantly seeking to be defined either by the things we do, fail to do, or the things done against us. Jesus, thank you that you step in, and as creator of all, Lord of lords, King of kings, the one who is the Alpha and Omega, you declare over us who we truly are. Gotta pray that um, for, for the different areas where we've experienced shame, that we would hear your voice sounding off, um, calling us son, calling us daughter, calling us acceptable, calling us clean, calling us as, as those who uh, are pure, and, and, and even as your word says, we are saints, we're holy ones. <laughs> Uh, how, how we don't feel that, because our failures are just ever before us, but um, Jesus, you are the one who defines us, and, and who, rev who rivals what you ultimately declare over us? There's no one who rivals your word. You are the Alpha, you are the Omega, you're the beginning and the end, you're the one who is seated above all. Uh, and as such, your word stands. And so, Holy Spirit, would, would it be that the word of Christ would stand over us, that it would ultimately inform our sense of shame, our sense of failure, that it would be, as, as you often so are, just gentle in terms of your word landing upon kind of the wounds of our hearts, that we would find something of just uh, deep healing, because we know that your definition of us stands. It stands, even in the midst of the accusations, even in the midst of uh, the ups and downs of the seasons of depression and difficulties of dealing with the sways of emotions that we that we all feel. We pray that your word, what you declare over us, would stand. Jesus, thank you for the text that says that you're not ashamed. You're not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. You're not ashamed to call us family. You're not ashamed to stand with us. You're not ashamed to walk with us. Uh, Spirit of God, you're not ashamed to be in us, working powerfully through us. So God, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you're always coming after us. You're, you, you want the deep things of our hearts, and you're so gentle. You're that good shepherd that tends to us and cares for us in all of our broken pieces and all of our greatest vulnerabilities. God, thank you that you come after us. And thank you that you deal so gently with us. Thank you, um, as, as one who says within our church, thank you that you're a gentleman. You're not an angry father. You're, you're, you're not one that, um, you know, stuns us in outrage. You're not one who takes advantage of us. You're a gentleman. So, God, we, we pray even now for the, for the deep wounds of individuals' hearts, the things that they carry, for, for significant losses, for significant uh, failings, where abuse has struck um, our lives in such deep ways. Um, Jesus, I pray that your spirit would even now just move powerfully, that what you declare over us, Jesus, would, would stand, that it would tend to our wounds, that it would be a balm for us. And we pray against the enemy, his works, his effects, where he would want to accuse us, where he would want to remind us of the shame. Jesus, may your words, what you've accomplished for us, would your wounds ultimately define us? Would your accomplishment ultimately define us? God, let us, let us see. Let us see the lies for what they are, and let us see the truth of what Christ now declares over us. 
So, Spirit of God, we pray that you just bring healing to our hearts. Pray that you would show us in deeper ways and greater measure just how acceptable we are to you through Jesus. How good you've been to us. When we've been like the woman with the issue of blood, not belonging. But as we seek you, we find you, we find something of healing. And part of that healing is that you would turn to us, you would call us out. And in a crowd, you would declare us your own. So Jesus, we, we thank you. Thank you that you call us sons, you call us daughters, you call us your own. And in that way, you defend us from anyone in the crowd who would say, no, you're less than, no, you don't belong, no, you don't add up. So Jesus, we look to you. We look to your word. We look to how you ultimately define us. We find our identity in you. We thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. And the Lord's bringing to mind the words from 1 John chapter 3, and especially verse 20. He says, Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Whenever our heart condemns us, whenever we're stuck in that shame, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. And before that in the chapter, he says, consider, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we would be called children of God, and so we are, the ones who believe in the, the name of his son, Jesus Christ. We've been given that incredible privilege to be called his children, and so we are. And we're God's children now, and what we will be hasn't yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That beautiful moment when we get to see Jesus face to face. He already sees us as we are. He already knows everything, and he's greater than our hearts when our hearts are condemning us. I also feel like the, the Lord is putting on my heart a burden for people who have messed up relationships really badly and they're feeling the shame of how they have damaged that relationship and that they would even be ashamed to see that person because of how terrible they would feel for how they've made the other person feel and they're stuck in that shame. I believe the Lord would say, when your heart condemns you, he is greater. Jesus has gone to the cross to set you free from that shame, to restore those relationships. And his desire is that you would run to him. And once you've done that, his desire is that that relationship would be restored. That's the, the other piece of 1 John is, God has loved us, and he's calling us to love one another. He's restored us, and he's calling us to restore our relationships with one another by his grace. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are feeling this unique shame of broken relationships, which, again, in so many ways is wrapped up in addiction. Lord, I pray that there would be beautiful, miraculous, spirit enabled moments of reconciliation in those relationships whether it's ex-husband and ex-wife or father son father daughter mother daughter brothers sisters lord i pray that that you would cut to the hearts of those who are in that situation right now speak to them and say that that, that you're calling them to yourself calling them to run to Jesus who, who sits with them in that shame. He identifies with it. He bore that shame in full. And Lord, would you enable them to then just speak the truth, to reveal their heart as it is to one another. 
so much of the battle of shame is not wanting others to see what's inside as we really are. But Lord, I pray in those relationships that they would be able, by your grace, to say, this is, this is how it is. This is me as I really am. Can you forgive me? Can we restore this relationship? Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for the beautiful, beautiful grace that you've given to us and the picture of the prodigal son running home to his father, feeling that shame of the broken relationship, feeling the shame of what he had done to his father, yet the beautiful response of his father as he sees him off in the distance and he runs to him and he hugs him and kisses him and goes to great lengths to show his love for his son. We just thank you again today for that beautiful grace. And Lord, we pray that you would break down these barriers, set people free from shame, break those chains. Lord, that there would be restoration of relationship with our Heavenly Father and with other people, that this would not just be one-dimensional, but that this would be an all-consuming sense of freedom. Lord, that that would then transform families, that it would transform our neighborhoods. Lord, would you do this work? Even today, Lord, bring, bring relationships and people to mind and, and give us this sense of fire where we, we have to resolve these things. We have to get to the bottom of these things. We have to be free from this. Lord, would you do that work in us today? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, folks. Well, thanks for uh, joining in. Um, We won't have any worship time tomorrow, but we'll catch you on Sunday.